I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die historic on the Fury Road. to the Mad Max Minute where it's bikes to the left of us, rock riders to the right, and here we are stuck in the middle with Mad Max Fury Road one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 55, which begins with hostile dirt bikes throwing firebombs, and it ends with Furiosa quickly dispatching two midair rock riders. Joining us this week are a few familiar faces from the Next Real Film podcast and the Marvel Movie Minute. It's Andy Nelson and Pete Wright. Hello. Hey guys. Welcome. Thrilled to be back in Fury yeah. Road. Ah, oh, what a great place to be. <laughs> it's so great to have you in a series and franchise that we know, well, or at least we have a very good idea that there is a definitive end that you don't have to worry about being suckered into for the rest of your lives. I know we're going to be retiring with the uh, Marvel movie, but it's still, we'll be, it'll be in our will passed on to our children. You must finish. I feel like you booked us on this show just so you could make that joke. Is that possible? <laughs> it's entirely possible. <laughs> I don't want to self-incriminate. Here in the U.S., we do have the Fifth Amendment that I can claim. Right. <laughs> I certainly don't want to find myself in the verbal equivalent of having dirt bikes flying over my head with firebombs dropping down on top of me, because that just seems like a terrible situation to be in. And it just so happens to be the exact situation that we find our heroes in here at the top of Minute 55, because these professional dirt bike riders are showing off some of their fancy moves, soaring through the air, firebombing the heck out of the war rig. Yeah, we come into this like mid-air with one of these bikes. It's great. It's like, what a way to start it off, you know? We, <laughs> it's like already we're full of stunts and uh, we're one second into this thing. It's great. It is just a stunning testament to this movie that just about any frame that you walk right into is such a beautiful tableau, right? That is the thing that I am so struck by watching this movie one minute at a time, one frame at a time, is that every frame is not to steal a beautiful concept and title, but every frame is a painting here. It's just incredible architecture. Mm -hmm. Something that's been striking me during the movie thus far is the consistent color palette and the division of that color palette. The top of the screen is blue. The bottom of the screen is this burnt orange and it always stays that way. And it is very consistent. And I don't think it really changes until we get a nighttime scene. Other than maybe like the giant haboob, the big sandstorm that they mm -hmm. have. Yeah. Which is kind of just like the burnt red everywhere. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Right, they very much live in this palette, and I think even the dark stuff, the interior stuff, the open, it still lives in the dark blues. Like, we don't escape this palette. It's really soothing. It's mm. weirdly soothing for a movie that's so wildly violent. Yeah. Why does Fury Road such a calm meditation? <laughs> well, it's that perfect balance of that orange and uh, yeah. blue that is like that's such right. a, a nice balance of color. So they managed to make this entire film look that way. It's great. And this color palette that we're working with just works so well with the modern cinema that we're working with, with digital projection and digital 
technology in general that can really highlight those oranges and blues that film and film projectors just didn't have the same ability to be so vibrant with. So it's a good example of George Miller as this old hat in the industry. Like he started in 79. Things were incredibly different back then. And yet he's altered the way he does things in order to reflect this new cinema landscape that this movie was released in. Right, because if he had filmed this movie in 79, technologically, he would not have been able to make it look this way. Mm -mm. I mean, never mind, like, all the CGI, but just the colors would not have looked the same. Mm. Well, not only was he starting in 79, but he was starting on a very independent size budget. So, oh, yeah. so also, if you throw that into the mix, I mean, there's no way he would have been able to make this, even if he had the tools. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, he is a great example of a filmmaker who's not extremely prolific. I mean, he's got a solid number of films, but it's not like Spielberg level or any you know massive quantity of films that he's done. And he's made just really consistent work throughout his career. I think that it's really been interesting to kind of see him grow as a filmmaker with as few films as he's done. And I think that's a huge testament to what we're seeing in this film mm -hmm. is what he's been able to learn and accomplish with just those other few films under his belt. It's really quite a amount of growth when you watch what he does here. Now, because we're talking about color, and I know that I've seen this topic come up online when I've been reading about the movie, obviously the first three in the series, they almost have a paleness to them. And then you switch from that track over to this movie where everything is very bright and very vibrant. I'm assuming that you both saw the earlier movies in the series, right? Oh, yes. I have, have a we... film familiarity, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think as viewers going from that less saturated color palette to this incredibly saturated color palette? I think it works well in context of the world that he's creating here. And it is very much a difference. I mean, the previous films were shot by a different DP, uh, mm -hmm. as I recall. And also, they were before the whole idea of kind of that digital intermediate where you could really play with your colors in the post-process. And I think that everything here, I don't know, for me, it works because everything still feels like it's part of this world that we've mm. seen through all those other films, even though there was a, a kind of that difference in the looks, the way that the flames look here, the way that everything just has kind of that burnt look, it just feels like it's part of this world still. So that's what I find really interesting. And it's mm. to your point, it, it, I think it works uh, in George's favor that he's able to really kind of play with all of those colors and bring a lot more forward this time that mm. he wasn't able to in the past films, but still keep it of this world in a way that feels like I buy that what I'm watching here is X number of years after those previous three films. I, it really works for me. And I, it's just interesting because it isn't necessarily the exact same look that he mm. was patterning from those other ones. Well, he's got a fantastic, you know, DP here in John Seal, and I think he had already played Seal, had already been playing with some of this oversaturated experience in Sands of Time, the Prince of Persia underwhelming uh, <laughs> video game movie. But this feels like almost the next evolution of my experience with color timing in this movie. Like this movie, the color timing is as much a character as it is in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, right? Where mm. it sets an experience for you that allows you to live in a world of dirt and 
fire. And that's where the movie has to be for the story. And so that's, I think, such an exceptional use of the technology to keep us in world. And, you know, such an incredible, again, evolution. And how quickly this property became the incredible home cinema test system like it was the fifth (laughs) element for a long time and now it's this with dolby vision and home atmos and this is the movie you test around because it's so so enveloping we have a local comic book convention here in the state of new hampshire and it is called granite state comic con and there was an exhibitor at this past year's granite con and she is the officially licensed dealer for vinyl adhesive stickers that you can put on the side of your vehicle and the skeleton arm that's on the side of the war rig she is the only one that is legally able to sell vinyl stickers of that skeleton arm design and uh, i did not shell out for the arm (laughs) i i was a little bit more conservative and just got the flaming circle design Mostly on Julia's suggestion. I don't think she wanted me driving around. I'm a New Englander. I'm very conservative. (laughs) I was wondering about that image on the side. I'm like, is that there specifically because of Furiosa? Oh, absolutely. It has to be. So it's like, it's her rig. Yeah. Yeah. She's personally designed it. (laughs) Right. Or at least personally customized it. Right. It's like they say, you put your blood, sweat, and tears into your work, and sometimes a proper result can cost an arm and a leg. And (laughs) while they've never come public with exactly how Furiosa lost her arm, hey, if she lost it during a delivery, that would make a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Right, because I I haven't read the comics, but I don't think, uh, I think that I would have heard if that answer had been revealed in the comics or somewhere. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I like that they keep it. That's something I think this series does series does really well is they they have a lot of these interesting elements all through it that establishes the world, but they don't ever feel like they have to explain away. Mm-hmm. You know, like, why are these rock riders? Why do they control this canyon? Why are there? Why is there's this bullet farmer? Why is there gas town? All these different things that are a part of this world are kind of left for us to kind of uh, play with. And, and I know that they established some of it like in the comics and stuff like that, but I love that most of this stuff is just there and it really builds this world. And that's what I think is one of the most magical things, if that word is appropriate for this series, which I maybe isn't, but <laughs> but still, you know what I mean? It's it, it really creates this world that is just so authentic and unforgettable and all enveloping. And what I like most about it is that while it does raise those questions, it just feels right. You can ask, hey, what's the detail here? Why isn't there a Mad Max equivalent of Wikipedia where every character has a 3000 page write up (laughs) and I know everyone's father's name, mother's name, childhood, favorite occupation sort of thing. You want to know. And though you want that, it doesn't ruin it because you don't have it. Yeah, yeah. Like, of course, the rock riders would live in the canyon. They drive dirt bikes. And, you know, of course, they do this high jumping thing. What else are they going to do? Right. And that's even if you have the luxury of having the time to ask that question, because we're moving on at such an incredible clip. And I bring up the phrase clip because we get a shot right around two seconds into the minute where Furiosa is leaning out the side window and she's using her shotgun to shoot at the rock riders. 
And they have something that I've called a jump edit at about three seconds and 12 frames. And it's something we saw back when Max was escaping from the War Boys in the Citadel. And it is just a cut in the action on either a hit like it was in the Citadel or a gunshot here in this scene. And it looks like suddenly you're at a slightly different angle or things have shifted in such a way. And I love it when George does that because it adds extra weight to what has just happened. It adds extra weight to the gunshot, extra weight to the hit. And it adds a, another level of, uh, say the word I want to use is visceralness, but I know that's the wrong word. <laughs> visceralness. <laughs> visceralness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the last time that happened back in the kerfuffle with the war boys, I had a really hard time seeing what you were talking about. Mm. And it took me a long time and I'm not ever sure that I really did see it. This, now that you've pointed it out, I can see it. Mm. It is more obvious to my eyes. Mm. And he's pretty consistent with that, too, because you even get that just a couple seconds later when Max is firing out his window. It's like right about the six, seven second range he's shooting. And they do the same thing there. A Miller has another quick cut in there. And you can really tell mainly because the, the position of the women behind him shifts so dramatically when he's mm -hmm. shooting. And then I noticed another one later when he's, I think it's, it's when he's loading the shotgun for Furiosa, which is much later, like 42, 43, 44 seconds in. But it's something that I think that Miller has adapted into his editing. Because I don't think, did he do that in the previous three? I don't think so. I don't think that type of editing was, was even really that common at that point. No, I don't think he did, and I think that stems from the fact that when he needed an editor for Fury Road, he got Margaret Sixel, because Margaret isn't one of these people that have edited a million Hollywood action films. Like, this is it. And so when she throws in little things like this, it just works so well. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized when a gunshot goes off near you, or when you're pushed into a wall, you instinctively blink. Your body closes your eyes for just the slightest moment to protect, you know, the fleshy orbs that collect visual information for your brain. And I think these little jump edits is the movie forcing you to blink. Even if you keep your eyes open through the edit, you still get that blink effect. And I love it. Oh, yeah, it, it works so nicely. And in a film like this that is so already full of that kinetic motion and just, you know, things being thrust at you all the time, it does give you it's I don't want to say it's like a, a way to breathe almost, but it's like, oh, OK, yeah, I can, you know, there's, you know, I can I can take that in, you know, <laughs> I can I can see that I can kind of take that in. There's something happening here. And and I, I just think it gives you that and it just kind of it, uh, I don't know, it really bumps the pace. It does so many things for it that uh, work in the favor of a film like this that is so kinetic from beginning to end. I mean, uh, I know we've been driving already for quite a while. I, I guess that after, after the sandstorm, it's pretty much been, well, no, really, since the, uh, it hasn't been that long because she was just talking to the, uh, the rock riders before every kind of all hell broke loose. Hmm. But still, like once they took off and uh, they they hit the road again, I mean, it's we know from our experience, you know, 55 minutes into this movie so far, we know once that rig starts going, it's going to just go and <laughs> things are happening. And those little edits, I think, just really kind of 
remind us that this thing is moving. We are in furious motion with this film. Absolutely. It's a very stressful situation, which I think is illustrated really well by us cutting into the back seat with Ang Herod. She pulls up her covering there to expose her pregnant belly and she starts like holding on to it. And we know from back when they were hiding from the rock riders that something was up with her. She was feeling something. And now in this high stress situation, I'm guessing that that situation has continued. Yeah, I think George is reminding us that there is something going on with her, even if it's false contractions or legit early contractions. Something is going on and it's not just going to go away. It's going to continue to play a part and it's going to become more and more important as time goes on. And he's just taking a moment out of the action to remind us of that. Mm-hmm. Something I'd never noticed and had always thought of this shot has been very troubling to me because it just looks so weirdly fake and it happens so fast and the, the belly just looks like plastic and I'm never quite in it. And then I watch it for this conversation and it's actually moving. Yes. There is a baby in there moving around and I'd never noticed that before and it is an amazing amazing commitment to the detail of this tiny shot that we actually get that reveal. That's that is incredible. So maybe her problem isn't so much Braxton Hicks or legit contractions. Maybe it's just the baby moving in very uncomfortable ways. Yeah, it's moving or it's a turn or it's yeah, I mean, something is happening. Kicking her pressing on her internal organs, which is very uncomfortable. Maybe she just has to pee. (laughs) (laughs) i mean these are women who have grown up in this world and uh, you know my understanding is these breeders these these five women here like there haven't been any babies these are the first potential mothers and so it's not like uh, other i can't remember the name of the woman who has been kind of keeping them like the the gardener i can't remember what her name is oh miss giddy miss giddy yeah the older one i mean maybe she kind of from olden times, whenever, uh, she might have some information to kind of help them through these sorts of things, but otherwise they don't really have anybody. So, so who knows what she's thinking right now, dealing with this, Mm. the fact that she's, you know, all of a sudden this baby inside of her is like moving around and whether it's contractions or not, she's at this point where there are a lot of things going on with her body that are going to, you know, really put her into a question like what is happening here and so, yeah, I can imagine that it's a difficult time. And, and with the baby turning or moving, not to mention the fact that it could you know, come out looking like, uh, what are the other, rictus or, or corpus? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it could have some strange deformities. This is that period of time. So who knows what's going on inside of her right now? I don't want to think about it. <laughs> well, and the, the next sort of sequence of shots takes us to dropping that cow catcher and, you know, potentially throwing the, the rig into a, a massive deceleration right? yeah. and, uh, in order to kick up that dirt. That's that's not where you want to be thinking about, um, you know, what's going on with your body. And I like that you mentioned kicking up dirt because that's the next sequence that I want to get into where the front of the war rig is just engrossed in or is just covered in flames and so furiosa reaches down below max's seat because he's in the driver's seat and she raises this lever and that lever drops the cow catcher in the front of the war rig and it starts kicking up dirt and just throwing it everywhere to douse those flames and so i was watching this happen 
And I got thinking, okay, so the Cowcatcher is pretty prominent. We've been seeing it on the front of the War Rig since we first, well, saw the War Rig. And I like to call it a Cowcatcher, but it also kind of looks like a plow blade that you see on the front of a truck during the wintertime. But I think it also really closely resembles a piece of locomotive equipment designed to deflect obstacles that would derail the train. Officially, they're called pilots, and they were invented by Charles Babbage in the 19th century. He invented the idea, but he never had his idea manufactured. And so when people started building them later on, people aren't really sure if they were using Babbage's design, but he was the first one to like publish the idea of it. They're also called cattle catchers and cow plows. So you can use whichever one you like the sound of better. <laughs> but what stands out to me most is that this design of a plow or cow catcher on the front of a vehicle with those hydraulically controlled arms is something that you see attached to some of the vehicles in the Super Mario Brothers movie made in 1993 <laughs> starring Bob Hoskins and John Leguizamo. It's a shared universe. <laughs> with how post-apocalyptic the Super Mario Brothers Mushroom Kingdom looks... It's entirely plausible that Mad Max and Super Mario Brothers, same place. All we need is dinosaurs in Mad Max and we can make it happen. Well, that totally wins the podcast. Nux is half of a Koopa Troopa, I'm sure. <laughs> he's, got, he's got it growing on his shoulder there. <laughs> yeah, the lowering mechanism does look like a snowplow. Yeah. And I hate the stereotype, but I think it's not a stereotype if it's true that they don't really have plows in Australia, do they? I mean, they don't get enough snow anywhere to have snow plows. Listeners. I mean, of course, they have other <laughs> kinds of plows that would probably have similar mechanisms, yeah. but snow plows. Like, I'm thinking like grading equipment for one thing. Yeah, right, right. To push dirt out of the way. Yeah. Australian listeners, is there any snow on the Australian continent? Like, or do you have any particularly high peaks or any... Areas that They're, reach far enough down. They, they have a yeah. some, some bunny slope type of little slush mountains. I don't know if I'd call them ski mountains. Because okay. <laughs> I know there are penguins that will swim up to the coast of Australia. I can't think of any notable accumulation that I can think of. But then again, I'm on the other side of the world. It's not like I would be the reliable source for meteorological information for another continent. You can go to Mount Kazik. Cusco, a family-friendly Selwyn snowfield. Okay. There's some uh, some snow. There's not much, but there is some <laughs> snow. There's a very short section of trip savvy dedicated to winter in Australia. It's like yay big. Very nice. For people that are wondering, dirt is actually an excellent way to douse flames because not only do vast quantities of dirt smother flames, Dirt also has a very high melting point, and so it's able to absorb the heat from the fire. And as everyone knows, fire is pretty much a pyramid where you've got heat, air, and fuel on three sides of the pyramid. And if you take away one of the legs of that pyramid, the whole thing collapses. And dirt is able to take away two legs of that pyramid, so it's just doubly effective. If it was able to eat fuel, first of all, that would make dirt terrifying, <laughs> <laughs> but if it did that it would make dirt like the ultimate fire extinguisher oh well so that raised a question i have is the fact that they might run into people who are throwing these firebombs at them 
the sole reason for having this on there that it can lower like this because i mean as we pointed out it's likely not for snow mm-hmm. they're not driving on train tracks it's not like the old days where they're using it to bump stray cattle out of the way or things like that what is the purpose for this if not to put out flames thrown by firebombs you don't think it's to knock cars out of the way or to, to use in some sort but of why a... the lowering why do they need to lower it then um because they can just keep it in the in the same spot to get yeah. cars out of the way i think it's for debris in general mm. whether it be large things like cars that wouldn't require it to be lowered as well as rocks yeah, it's a multi-purpose tool. Okay, okay. They do have this nice roadway, which in the comics is called the Fury Road, between the Citadel and Gastown. And that, that roadway had to be created somehow. And it was probably a combination of just continual travel with a vehicle like this that could push stuff out of the way to have this nice, clean road. Yeah, on its own. It is very useful. We saw the cowcatcher on the front of the war rig obliterate the Nux car when they collided. But you can see the added benefit of, okay, there's a pile of debris in the middle of the road. If we lower the cowcatcher just above the driving path, we can more effectively clear stuff away. So I like the usability of it. I just wish that it was more clear that the lever was not a all the way down or all the way up thing. I think Furiosa pulled it all the way up and it went all the way down because they were in a desperate measure. But I would like to think that if you lift up the lever only part of the way, then it'll only go part of the way down. I'm willing to believe that that's the way it's structured, even though we don't see it on screen. Right. That it's customizable. Exactly. Well, it's a handy tool regardless of how you slice it. Absolutely. And not only does it put out the flames, but it throws up so much dirt that it probably forces all the rock riders back. In fact, when the dirt dies down, the rock riders, we see that they were actually back on the hills. And so if they wanted to get closer during all the dirt being thrown around, they wouldn't have been able to because they wouldn't have been able to see. So it not only put out the fire, but it also kept the aggressors a little bit further back for a good amount of time. Right. Yeah. I mean, even the first, as soon as they do it, there's two who are right on their right next to them and they veer off as soon as they see that dirt. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, that's the mm-hmm. last thing those rock riders want to get stuck in. I mean, it's it's almost like being stuck in the giant sandstorm. You don't yeah. want that, especially when you're on a motorbike. <laughs> yeah. I know what I'm about to say may grow tiresome by the end of the movie and perhaps it already has, but the visual of the sand being thrown up and taking up the entire screen is one of my favorites of the movie, certainly of this week. It's beautiful. It's just a wall of sand, so it seems really simple, but it's not that simple. And it's very patterned and unique, and it's gorgeous. Yeah, I I love the way that it plays, just the way that it billows and moves. And as I watch it, I do wonder, I'm like, this is tricky stunt driving, because there, I mean, somebody's driving this with zero visibility and you just have to really trust the people who you're i'm assuming on radio communication with saying okay go straight okay you're fine just stay steady at that speed and just kind of you know exactly knowing what they're doing and being very confident in their driving skills so that they are driving at whatever speed they're going with zero visibility and it ends up being completely safe Mm -hmm. because they have to drive perfectly over this berm that has been obviously created on purpose And they have to keep going straight. Do you think any of this 
is digitally modified? Mm. I don't think so. I don't know. I mean, just in terms of like embellishing the dirt. Mm, yeah. I don't know. I feel like anymore I have a hard time saying no to that question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure some, somebody touched nowadays. some pixels on, on this, this set. But uh, given his allegiance to practicality in, in making this film, I believe so much more in just the way the the dirt is interacting with the elements of the the front end of this truck the way it plays against the skull as it causes that additional sort of fin of of dirt plume to come out uh in front and then the the way the dirt is moving out of the truck a few shots later as they kind of emerge from it i believe in that as a practical effect more than than in any other film i'm I'm sure they touched something feels like that'd be a losing bet yeah i feel like they i don't know and again it's george miller who knows what they decided to do with real practical effects but i feel like the flames like there's so many flames on the front i feel like the flames might be digital but the sand might be real but again like pete said it it's possible there's there's a lot more digital stuff here that we're just not aware of but you know what else? Like you're making this movie to your point, Andy, that like you're part of the stunt team on Mad Max Fury Road and you're going to let them say, hey, we've got this sequence and it's going to have a lot of dirt and it's going to look like this. But don't worry, you don't have to do that. <sighs> no, no, you're going to get in behind the wheel of that truck and you're going to drive it headlong into that berm <laughs> because this looks like a lot of fun. Like an, this is why you get into stunt work to do stuff like this. How right. beautiful. I can imagine that the phrase "Don't worry, we'll edit it in post" is right. <laughs> for some stuntmen great to hear. For other stuntmen, the worst yeah, possible the thing worst. to hear. Right. <laughs> so, with the fire extinguished and the rock riders coming in from all angles, Furiosa opens up the moonroof and she climbs up out of it. And Max loads a rifle for her, pulls the clip from the top of the rifle, closes. The slide then hands it up to her, and so this is a Type 56 SK Chinese version of the, oh wow, okay, Russian incoming, so bear with me. Samos Zari Adni Karabin Sistemi Simonova rifle. Apologies to the Simonova family, first and foremost, <laughs> but this is a Soviet semi-automatic rifle designed in 1943 by Sergei Gavrilovich Simonov. And it is chambered for 7.62 by 39 millimeter rounds. I counted six rounds in the clip that Max pushes down into the rifle. So as Furiosa is taking out these guys, six is the magic number. Okay. So she stands up through the roof hatch. She takes the rifle and two rock riders are coming on the side. She fires once, takes out that lead rock rider. And he does this nice little tumble off of his bike. Next up, we get a rock rider on the left, and Max takes him out with his handgun. And as the rock rider falls from his bike, Max starts reloading, and Furiosa fires two more times off to her side. So she's at three at this point. She's halfway done. We then get a nice little feature of Max reloading his gun and then reaching out and firing between Furiosa's legs. And before he starts firing again, we hear Furiosa's fourth shot. And then after the quick close-up of Max's hand squeezing off rounds, we see Furiosa aim and shoot at an incoming rock rider for number five. And the final shot we get happens after that rock rider falls off his bike. And then another one jumps into view and she shoots him right out of the air for the sixth and final shot of that clip. So those are our six. 
That's my favorite <laughs> shot of the minute. Yeah. That is such a fantastic, fantastic shot. And again, you know, you made this comment earlier about the, you know, how quick they're able to move through this particular sequence. Six shots, all the rock riders falling in a, a handful of shots. I counted 35 cuts in this minute, if you're counting cuts, which uh, is extraordinary, especially when you look at where they came from, from, uh, you know, Road Warrior. And it's still, man, they jam a lot of action in between those cuts. So in my notes that I provide for all of you, every cut is its own cell in a spreadsheet. So when I highlight the spreadsheet for this episode, I count 41 rows. 41. Now, okay, that doesn't include the jump cuts from the gunshots. Okay. So if anything, there are more than 41 in this minute. Right, yeah. <laughs> It's not the most we've ever had in a minute, but it is up there in number. It's just stunning. <laughs> uh, you know, I was comparing it on uh, Cinemetrics and, to, you know, I just hadn't looked at this one compared to, it's been a long time, Andy, I can't remember if we talked about that, but, you know, it looks like, um, you know, we had about 15.3 shots per minute for the Road, road Warrior and this one is is uh, 22 at 2,700 cuts over over two hours, which is just an extraordinary amount of movement. And I love Furiosa's extraordinary efficiency with the shots. She knows that she doesn't have that many, so she needs to make each one count. And for every bullet that she fires, one of the rock riders goes down, which is in stark contrast to how Max is doing it, where he's just firing sheer quantity over quality. <laughs> Right. And Furiosa <laughs> is so efficient with her rifle that the last rock rider she kills, sure, he falls off that bike, but because inertia is a quality of matter, that bike keeps going off in the same direction that it was originally going, and so she has to duck down into the rig in order to avoid being splattered in the face by a motorcycle. <laughs> Which is so good because it totally demonstrates why her character, like her position is so much higher demand than Max, mm. right? I mean, she is in her place for a reason. And this is where we get to see why he's just, oh, look, I'm shooting a gun. And she is just on point. And I do think it's a little funny that she kills a guy on the motorcycle and then she has to not avoid the guy, but avoid the motorcycle. The motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> And that's where we've come to the end of Minute 55. So here at the end of our episode, uh, Andy and Pete, is there anywhere you would like our listeners to go in order to hear more of your material? Yeah, you know, uh, they could check out thenextreel.com, reel, R-E-E-L, uh, just like the old film reels. And there they can find our main show, The Next Reel, where we talk about just a wide variety of movies. We've done the Mad Max series, so we've talked about all four of those films. And yeah, they can check out our shows there and, and find links to all of our social media places. And then Marvel Movie Minute is the place where they can check out the Marvel shows that we're looking at right now. We're, we've just started, so we're looking at Iron Man one minute at a time. Although by the time this episode comes out, uh, well, we're probably pretty close, I would say, to the end of Iron Man. <laughs> Yeah, we'll be just, uh, we may be in the end credits. Who knows? <laughs> As for us, we will be coming back on Wednesday. The wives are going to have a little trouble getting the rifle reloaded. The Rock Rider Chief is going to show up to air his grievances. And the fuel pod, it's going rogue. 
The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for MadMaxMinute, and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, where you can see what's in our Tee Public store, join our Patreon, or even donate to the show to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 55 of Fury Road. We'll see you next time.